Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag. And I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right? I mean, no, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays a means floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get a mean in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tom, what is the most bizarre culinary preference one of your family members has? Oh, I love this question. Okay. My brother likes to microwave his ice cream into a soup to the point where when he was a kid, I'll never forget it. He burnt his tongue on ice cream. Wait, he still does this (laughs) as an adult. I think so. I think he likes his ice cream extremely soft does not like hard ice cream. My father always did very strange things with half bagels. For instance, slathering it with mayonnaise and then putting a piece of bologna over it and then just eating an open-faced bagel sandwich. That was always the thing that grossed me out. It was like the Annie Hall family, except we were the Halls. Like, who eats a bagel with mayonnaise and bologna? You know who does? My father. You know what? Doesn't sound too bad. No, it sounds terrible. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. And I'm Tom Haberstroh. Tom, we get the feeder back from Last Chance Kitchen into the main competition, which, I I mean, do we want to lead with that? Because I just think that was a particularly dramatic moment before we actually get to the episode in hand. I kind of feel like this is the one week we kind of flip it, and we, we should really go into what was an interesting Last Chance Kitchen finale. What do you think? 
Yeah, we had a two-part Last Chance Kitchen finale. Um, the first one was like 15 minutes. The second one was 22. So I kind of feel like it's uh, it was like its own full episode, yeah. um, like of Top Chef, and it was jam-packed with with um, intrigue because they you know they do the thing where hey you're gonna have some some special guests some um, they're gonna do a blind tasting and you kind of know that oh the chefs are coming back and doing the tasting and contrary to what we thought going into this episode that we teased last week it wasn't that they were gonna be back into the competition and then they'd have to face another like when they showed Shota coming in I was like are they going to bring Shota into the competition? Cause I kind of felt like that would have been a twist at the very end that maybe some, some producer was like, let's bring in a total ringer here at the end. But no, it was just a two part thing where the first, um, the first challenge was three C's J versus Sarah, uh, creamy, chewy, and crunchy. They had to prepare six plates, one for Tom and then five for the contestants, chef testants who were in the stew room. And they did, they did pretty well here. Uh, yeah, I, I thought so. I mean, it was interesting to watch them anguish over the little uh, preference on the first dish, which determined the extra time. I thought that was a really interesting uh, sort of feature to the 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 exercise because what they essentially had to do was each create a dish, which would then be judged as a preliminary dish, and the better the chefs liked it, the more time the chef would get then for the finale dish that would ultimately re- determine whether or not that chef would return. Yeah. And I think just like we see in the NBA, like the final score doesn't tell you how close a game was. Right. It was five zero. Sarah won every single one of the votes, but I think it was pretty close here. Um, she did a, um, a golden raisin relish on a squash tempura. Um, and all, and Jay did a shrimp boil with some andouille sausage. And it was just, you know, two really strong dishes that each of the chef testants were very, um, very gentle in their responses, just like, Oh, I love this dish, but I had to go with Sarah here. Um, and I was curious in, in a little game theory here, Kevin, let's say you're a chef, te- chef tested tasting the food and you know, Jay is doing one of the dishes. Would you rather vote for Jay's dish knowing she would get an advantage against this rolling opponent, whoever she's facing in last chance kitchen? Knowing you know you know which one's Jay's dish, right? Because she's she ter- she cooks a certain type of food. Do you vote for Jay to get the strong incumbent out of there, or do you just go for just just pick the the best the best dish? So basically, you're asking if I sandbag against the spirit of the game in order to ensure a better outcome for me. I'm just saying, do you kind of in the back of your head say, you know, do I want Jay back in the competition or do I want this juggernaut who's been slaying people in last chance kitchen? I don't know. I mean, I'm still, uh, d- despite what we've, we've discussed with the warriors Memphis series and various codes, I am somebody who still believes you have to abide by the spirit of the game. I'm not see, cause that, that's all my thing is I want it to be competitive, but within the framework of the norms of the game. And the norm here says, you know what? Like the job is to reward the chef that cooked better with more time. I'm not going to reverse that. Um, I am not a nihilist. Are you a top chef nihilist, Tom? It sounds like you're a top chef nihilist. No, I'm a competitor. Okay. I want to give myself the best chance at winning top chef. You would equate it with a flop. What you're saying is not foul a guy in midair knowing it's kind of a, it could hurt and, and injure the guy. What you're saying is you would flop. Well, you know, Marcus Smart did win Defensive Player of the Year, didn't he? He did. 
he's incentivized to flop. And so is Chris Paul. And so is, you know, everybody in the NBA is incentivized to flop because it works. And I think in this competition, you need to do everything that works in your favor to win it all. And I think, you know, Sarah getting the 45 minutes is an advantage. But I was curious because I, I once I saw Jay sitting there with her hands tied, not able to do anything, but she did get to think. Yes. She did get to conceive her dish in quiet and figure out her dish. Whereas I'm curious, did Sarah have 15 minutes to think about her dish before she jumped in head first? This is a great point and one that I wanted to discuss with you. Is that we learn because it, it, Sarah alludes to it a little bit in the main episode where she says, where she runs into trouble, the reason she is, she suggested that the reason she succeeded during this long run in Last Chance Kitchen is she's not given enough time to think herself into trouble, right? Mm. Where the reason she had become a strong competitor in Last Chance Kitchen was, hey, you just go cook. And it's only when you have to go home and brood the night before, what do I do, what do I do, that you talk yourself into trouble. And I did wonder that is, is one of the great, and this is kind of actually beyond kind of Last Chance Kitchen or Top Chef or cooking is is sometimes time, not in the sense that, oh, you'll just waste it anyway, but like is thinking the best remedy for for, for, for this problem that is quick fire, right? Like is it better to have 15 minutes to think and 30 minutes to cook or 45 minutes to, quote, do whatever you want? And what you're suggesting, what I think might be true certainly for some chefs, is better you do have to kind of sit there and meditate for 15 minutes on what you're going to do, what you sort of mentally plan out. And I agree with you. Like, look, I think – you always want more time in the kitchen. Yeah. But I think one of the unintended consequences of not being able to cook is you have to sort of think strategically about the 30 minutes that's coming up. And planning does serve a purpose. In the end, Sarah did win. She she prevailed. She was victorious in this. She does a, a gnocchi with ricotta and herbs. Jay does a spaghetti squash snapper broth with clam, which, man, that looked like a really delicious dish. I, I, I saw that and I was like, yeah, I, I would order that in a, in a hot second. She's She hasn't done that one before, apparently. Um, but Sarah moves into the competition and I'm so glad she's there, Kevin, because I love watching her on this show. I love watching her and her sister interact. I thought they could be a really good, uh, compelling reality TV show if if they were just out in some random city in America having to live by themselves and just stick it into the into the 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 elements and I just I thought that she's really compelling on TV. Sarah is just fantastic, and and then her sister when she was doing the breaking the fourth wall and and looking at the camera earlier. I just love everything about Sarah, and I'm really upset that she's on your team and not mine because not only do I think she's an excellent cook, but she is a great shows person. She's great on TV, and I just think she's really fun. So she's back, and there's six left going in elimination challenge. Yeah, and I think the show missed Sarah this year. I mean, very much at the end of the day, this is a cast for a show that, that is an entertainment product. And the more compelling the characters, the more compelling the show. Um, there have been some fun characters. I do feel like Sarah has this sort of unfiltered interior monologue that she is sharing with the viewer that you, you don't want everyone to be that neurotic and recursive in their self-awareness, but I do think it really helps, and we miss Sarah this season. I think Sarah would have been a really nice presence week in, week out. I like seeing, hearing her. I like hearing her inter, internal monologues. I like hearing how she kind of processes the game. I think she's a really good proxy for a viewer 
Um, she wants to win. She's also a little bit unnerved by the competition, which you should be because it's kind of stressful yeah. and that's what makes it a competition. Anyway, I'm glad to see her back. Um, I do want to talk about some of her decisions in coming back because I do um, – I really like this episode actually, I, um, the, the main show. I really we, – we started with a, a great challenge I think you and I both love, which is who, what's better than a seafood tower? Mm-hmm. Nothing's better mm-hmm. than a seafood tower. Uh, and then we went into the ultimate, the family dinner. But um, let's talk about Galveston Beach, where I've never been, actually, Tom. And you and I are pretty well-traveled in the southeastern United States. I have never been to the Texas coast, largely because we have the Carolina coast. Who needs the Texas coast? But I, I, I have, I've, I've come to appreciate kind of uh, the Texas coast just by quick viewing here. Yeah, and, and I think it was Nick, or maybe it was Damar, who said it felt a lot like New Orleans felt a lot like New Orleans there. Um, the architecture, just the, the, uh, on the Gulf there, it looked like, uh, it did look like to me, I've never been to Galveston, but it did feel like, um, uh, very similar to that. And I, I, uh, I, I love, I love a good seafood tower and the fact that you could do the hot or cold dishes. Like I was all about that idea. Um, and the weather was bad. We'll get to that later, but you know, it was, I thought one of the strongest episodes we've had this season because there was the element of mystery. And yes, they picked up on the whole family member coming back um, concept. But when we do a a seafood tower and I'm watching them cook, it comes back to my my pet peeve is shelled shrimp. I just can't do it. I don't understand it. Um, And the fact that Ashley comes in with with her jerk shrimp that looked delicious, but then would get all grimy and and sticky and your hands are all dirty padma loved it and me i'm just like just give me get rid of the shell and cook that cook that baby right there i mean i know i know there's been a lot of discourse lately around um the annoyance of having to take off your tails and shells on shrimp and prepared dishes that you spend lots of money on and i'm as you know i'm i'm i am on the member of the team of i don't want to work that is why i'm paying you to cook my food and to bring it to me is i do not want to do work it's why i don't order crab that I have to if, if you're serving me a hardware tool out of a toolbox at the <laughs> table, a mallet, a tweet, whatever it is, I, the utility of the meal has been sacrificed. My uncle George got a hammer one time to open up a lobster craw that we got back home in Connecticut. Yeah, now, I mean yeah. The, the one exception I'll make is every once in a while, like a, a true crawfish broil. I mean, like you know, crawfish requires a little work, and I and I think that that, that I'll I'll indulge a little bit. But um, yeah, I can't decide on this show whether it was too difficult to eat is a you, I feel like we generally see a number of times during the season, you know, quick fire, possibly like, hey, this was difficult to eat. We have to – you were one of our least favorite dishes. And then there are times where they're totally willing to, you know, yeah. to take it. Yeah. Like, like that, that peel and eat shrimp from Ashley, which looked delicious though, was like that's – I kind of said that that's going to be a mess. She's going to get dinged for just how messy it is. But Surprise moment, yeah. I really like this challenge. I, I love oysters as you know. The watermelon mignonette from Nick. Well, my scallop crudo, which you've seen on Instagram, I, I do a, I do a I do a watermelon sake um, consomme for my my scallop crudo. So I love watermelon with seafood, um, whether it's a mignonette, a vinaigrette, a, a, a consomme, whatever. So I, I, I was very into his. I, I loved all of the raw oysters. I thought Sarah made an interesting choice. Um, it didn't work in her favor, but doing a hot buttered oyster, kind of oyster on fire um, with a peach relish, which actually looked delicious with the breadcrumbs i love a, i yeah. love a good breadcrumb i love yeah. a crunchiness on a, on, a, on an oyster i I'll, I'll eat oysters all day raw but i um i, I liked uh, damar's peach and tamari vinaigrette um, i'm gonna try that at home um uh, i need to start you know what tom we all need to kind of start making oysters at home uh it's a little typical learning how to shuck those things but like what's better than putting out you know 
sort of whole oysters on the half shell with some yummy vinaigrette or mignonette or et of some kind. Yeah, there was a there was an oyster shop down the street from us here in Charlotte, and it closed up shop. And I was really bummed out about that because it's just like a good Friday afternoon. The weather's hot, and you're just like, you know what? Let's just go get like a couple dozen oysters and 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 shuck those babies and, and gulp them down. It's great. It's great to have. And then the, look, I know I get the feeling that dill is that a is that a polarizing herb? You know, my sister despises it, and I love it. And, you know, it's funny. Nothing's polarizing when you like it. <laughs> it's only polarizing when you don't like it. And there, I do know a number of people for whom dill is just dill. Are you, a, are you anti-dill? No, I'm, I'm pro-dill. I'm pro-dill. Pro dill, but I've, I've, I have friends that just can't do dill. And watching Sarah do the dill pickled shrimp and saying it's a, it's a favorite of her mother's, I just remember, like, is dill higher on the polarizing power rankings of herbs higher than cilantro i feel like cilantro is the king well not to me because i like dill and i don't like cilantro. No, i think cilantro is more polarizing or maybe it's just me because i yeah hate it and you but it's up it. there dill is up there yeah i do think it has it has its detractors um i, I want to talk about evelyn for a second just because i think she continues to declare herself really the, the strong number two in this competition right now. She finished at the top of both the quick fire and the elimination, which we'll talk about shortly. She does. And again, it's that sort of chef Gregory. She knows her play, favorite profile. She knows how to assemble the dish with the component parts to accentuate that profile. And she does it with great competence. Um, and it's coherent, right? Oyster with a fish sauce, vinaigrette, chili oil, crispy shallots. Give me some sweetness some pungency, some spice, some texture, right? Boom, 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 boom. Oyster with fish sauce, vinaigrette, chili oil, crispy shallot. I say it to you in seven words. It makes absolute sense. You want to taste it. It looks good. <laughs> and then she comes back with her hot seafood tower item, which is the Thai Cajun boil. Again, familiar thing. We've seen more damn variations on shrimp boils and Cajun this and Southeast Asian boils. And she did it. It's something we've seen and she perfected it, right? Like it's She's really impressive. She is she is a strong number two. I think she's got a a shot to upend Buddha. It's going to be difficult because he's just out of uh, he's just right now really cooking beautifully. But she's really established herself as just somebody who understands how to win in this competition. And you never feel like she's stressed when she's cooking. No, everything is so efficient. And I think having that blueprint from which she can work off of is so advantageous in this competition. She never feels like she's running out of time or she can't execute something. She just seems so in control. And that goes a long way in this competition. Whereas you'll see in the next one, you know, in the elimination challenge, uh, Sarah didn't have her best dish in the quick fire and she certainly didn't have it in this one. She started overthinking and maybe Look, I want to chop this up to chalk it up to fatigue. Like Sarah just didn't seem like she was making good decisions on this episode. And I could tell as she's just like gulping down coffee in the car and just talking about how fried she is. I kind of feel like she's the opposite of Evelyn where she's just all over the place sometimes in her mind. And on this one, it showed that when we had – she had to do a tuna um, dish from her sister. Mentioned she wanted tuna. And they get these menus from the secret um, diners and they start to pick it up. And she really – she she screwed up on this one. Um, she didn't get sent home for it, but she really screwed up because she's never really cooked tuna before, which is a huge surprise to me is 
Um, not that like tuna is a staple of Jamaican food or Minnesota. Food. Isn't she from Minnesota? I feel like she's from Minnesota, Michigan, but actually grew up Michigan, in, that's in right. Jamaica, partly. Right. I don't really. I can't really believe that she's never sliced a tuna steak before. Yeah. So first of all, I, I have to say I, it always makes me nervous when people have uncovered coffee in the car. <laughs> I don't think you should get into a car with uncovered coffee, a mug or something. I, I, I mean, I, I suppose so if it's if it's below half, if you're just kind of finishing up. I just it always makes me nervous. I don't like potential spillage. It makes me nervous. I don't like cups that are over full. I'm amazed when you go to some of these bars. I went to a place in San Francisco that. Where, where the server was literally had top like the, the the froth from the sort of pisco sour ish cocktail is over the rim and yet mm. they're able to get through the table of a very crowded restaurant. I don't like exposed fluids um, and, and wide brimmed cups that that are uncovered. That, that made me very nervous. Um, this was an interesting challenge, uh, which was it, it was the it was actually they did a kind of a nice little curveball here. There were there was going to be a, a family VIP coming to vacation in yeah. Galveston. They wanted a private chef or a series of private chefs, as it were, and um, each chef got a folder of one of the family members in this party that, in their bizarro, weird, strange or not strange or preferences or aversions. And then slowly but surely, all the chefs realized that the the, the, the folder they were given as the profile of their client was actually a family member, um, and. Sarah figured this out because the client hated mushrooms, and that was a, that is a signature of her, of her loud, boisterous, loving sister. And and uh, Buddha said that there's there's the combination of like and aversions were like somebody liked the club sandwich and some you know a, a tum yum soup or something. So it was very clear, and it was kind of heartening that that of course yes these are these are preferences of your family member. So essentially, the the challenge was make a family style dish for that services the culinary preferences of this particular family member. And that was the challenge, a family-style dish. You like the premise, Tom? I loved it. And I felt a little bad for Damar because, man, as someone who's, whose mother is also in a wheelchair, I, I kind of watched this episode and, and thought a lot about my mother. And, and if there was a challenge like this, um, who would be there for me? And, you know, he was going through it emotionally, as we saw in this episode, a rare moment of him just wearing his emotions on his sleeve. And because he had Eric, his his boss, which everyone else has like these feel good moments, big hugs. And then he he gets Eric Williams there, who's, yes, his friend, but he also has it's his boss. And so he's inside his own head about, you know, serving food to his boss, which is another type of judge. Right. And, um, but I loved, I loved watching Buddha and his wife and getting that backstory. Um, Nick and his mother, I mean, is there anything better than that? Like they're on, on the back porch and hugging and, and reminiscing. And, um, that was just really just special to see, uh, a Ashley, same thing. Um, and, and look, uh, Evelyn just is, it's great. She's she's been such a, a a welcome participant on this show because of the Houston aspect. But she just is she's great. And hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. 
You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. It was a really heartwarming episode, and I was hoping that's the direction that they were going is the family reunion. Once I, once I got that, I was like, I hope they bring some of their family members back, and it would be really cool to see. But Kevin, I gotta say, the Verbo thing, as soon as they introduced that, I said, ooh, we're going to get some drama about a tiny kitchen or there's just not enough burners or they're going to be scrapping in it for space. And we got none of that. We got none of that. It's more the top. The, it's not top chef. It's soft chef this season where in years past when they have one like little tiny kitchen that they have to work for work in, there are turf wars all over the place and there's just battles and it gets bloody and it gets nasty. And on this one, I feel like we, it, everyone just played nice and it was just lovely. And I was so bummed out. I was like, oh, can we get some more of that conflict? Yeah, it is. Um, I was hoping <laughs> that we'd get a little kind of my space, my place, stress, and even Nick alluded to the fact that I, I we can all kiss and make up, but there was there was no making up. Um, there was just pure kissing. Uh, this is yet the most either well-edited or well-behaved or just magnanimous group of chefs and competitors I've ever seen. Um, yeah, was, was hoping that this would contribute to a little bit of just, just – it doesn't have to be all-out warfare, but just a little yeah. – like, hey, that's my oven, right? Like that was my dibs on the oven, right? And just a little bit of, um, a little bit of like elbows here and there, but you know. But it is soft chef right now. Um, it's just kind of a phase the show might be going through. Uh, I will say that I was, uh, yeah, I, I did really feel for, um, for Damar, you know, obviously not, not being able to have his mom. Meanwhile, his, uh, Eric Williams has a restaurant called Virtue in Hyde Park in Chicago, which I could not get a table. It was really eager to eat there in one of my uh, two off nights in Chicago and just could not get a table. It, it was uh, He's been nominated, I think, for Best Chef uh, Midwest. Uh, folks love this restaurant. Um, it is where Damar, I believe, is chef de cuisine. Mm -hmm. And uh, Williams himself is, is is the owner or proprietor and looks fantastic. So uh, I'm actually really excited You know, next time I'm up in Chicago to do this. But yeah, he kind of represented uh, Damar's family. And uh, interesting decision-making, as you said earlier, when you have kind of an open-ended assignment like this, you have certain parameters, hey, family members want certain things and don't want other things. But by and large, this is a big open-ended challenge, right? Buddha can make anything and Buddha goes against the grain here. Yeah. A matriciana, which he calls marry me pasta because it is a pasta, very rustic, basic dish, right? Like it's a to roasted tomato, some sort of ham you know, garlic, very basic 
kind of family style of town shit. Little red pepper, little yeah. spice in there, little heat. Yep. It, there's not huge technique here. It is just home cooking. It is the last thing I would ever expect to see Buddha make in the latter rounds of Top Chef, which which made it all the more kind of impressive. And not like not that, I also felt like Tom that I knew he was going to nail it and I figured he'd get on the top and not win, right? Because it is sort of a low ceiling easier low ceiling dish for a for a, for a chef like Buddha. And it was. The difference was is the ceiling was very high because ultimately I thought Damar was going to win this. Damar made the dish that I would have ordered of the six off the menu, right? I was stunned. Yeah. Stunned. Floored. Floored that Damar didn't win this one. Same here. The redfish with the herb crust, the white beans with the enduya and the pine nuts. Like that is my dish right there. Oh, yeah. And it looked great. Um, Evelyn with the crispy snapper, the sweet vinegar. By the way, a classic Evelyn Chef Gregory dish. I know I may keep making this parallel, but it is, she is. I love seeing sort of just making parallels between previous uh, Top Chef contestants that have succeeded and, and new ones. I just think it, it, she's so in that school of, of, of chef. But those three dishes were the top. Um, but it was the rustic umatriana. Um, I love saying that word. Umatriana. Um, <laughs> oh, I. I screwed it up there but the marry me pasta that that <laughs> yeah that, that um by the way uh, um buddha's wife is beautiful not that i should be surprised it's just like wow um I, I i got to watch this episode tom in a bunker suite at chase center in san francisco um a member of the golden state warriors staff is a huge top chef and pack your knives fan and um i said well why don't i come back to san francisco on thursday for game six on Friday. Why don't we watch the show together? And I figured out oh, we wherever, somewhere, maybe my hotel, whatever. And he said, why don't we watch it in a bunker suite, just feet away from the floor at Chase Center. Whoa. So we went into a bunker suite where tech titans spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for their own little area with wine and these couches and this huge TV in each screen with the nine panels. And what did we do? We watched Top Chef in Chase Center. And, um, that was, uh, that was my evening. I got to watch top chef just feet away from the warrior's floor during the postseason. Did your pal have any thoughts on this season that were different from your own or any takes you can share with the audience here? Similar to us, I think thinks the show has gotten a little less competitive, still loves the show. We all love the show, but I think, you know, I I think shares many of our, you know, I wouldn't even say misgivings, just we've noted that the, 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 you know, the show's a little softer. It's a little softer, a little less kind of, as you say, the, the elbows aren't as sharp. The competition isn't as fierce. Losing doesn't seem as consequential. Winning, for that matter, doesn't seem as consequential. But uh, again, we all, we both say, you know, we salivated over the, the, the seafood towers. Yeah. And, and obviously the better dishes at the family dinner. Did you feel after watching this episode that taking Buddha over the field was still the smart choice, yeah. like anything you saw here. I, I felt the same way is that when he did that, that homey soul filled dish of the Matriana, um, a Matriana dish, I felt like that was a level that I didn't know or a place that I didn't know Buddha could go. And he showed that he has that kind of range. Um, and I think that played a part in why they chose him as the winner is because I think that he showed a side of himself in this dish 
not just because of his wife and and the story behind it, but because of the execution of this dish. It wasn't fussy, as Gail said. And I think that played a role as much as we like to think that they they have goldfish goldfish memories as judges. They don't think about what you've cooked in the past. I do think that he got bonus points on this one because of the fact it was so different. Um, and I really felt bad for DeMar because I thought he had the winning dish and the, the responses that he got were just over the moon about his dish. The phenomenal, um, the, it was a moist, cozy fish that, that Sheldon said. And I just felt like when you, and by the way, Sheldon and Adrian, Hey, great to see them. Great guest judges. Yeah. Great guest judges. So good to see them. And yeah. so I was I was sitting there being just like, oh, Damar's winning this, no, no doubt. And even though Buddha might not win, I kind of feel like I I kind of feel like he's better um better odds to win this top chef because of that dish that he made, even though it's not gonna win. And sure enough, he wins. He gets his fourth win of the season. Um, and I just thought that was a big surprise. And you know, I, my scorecard, I had DeMar winning, Buddha uh, in the top three, obviously, and Evelyn. And then the bottom, I had, uh, of course, the rest, Ashley, Sarah, Nick. And I did see Ashley as going home. Yeah, I had the four, five, six pretty well defined. I think it was very clear it was Nick, Sarah, Ashley, four, five, six. I, like you, had DeMar one with Buddha and Evelyn, Evelyn two and three, you know, whichever it was. Clearly, the judges saw it Buddha one, DeMar two, Evelyn three. Nick four, Sarah five, Ashley six. I always like to play that game where, you know, we know top and bottom can you kind of make even finer distinctions. You know, I go so back and forth on this. There's a kind of a philosophical top chef question, which is, you know, are you a strict constructionist that in a perfect world, these dishes would be served blind and you wouldn't know who made them and the judges would make their decision? Or should any part of kind of personal journey be part of the judicial process, right? Should, should Buddha get, um, extra regard because, hey, he normally doesn't cook mm-hmm. rustically. He tends to prefer technicalities, sometimes at the expense of hominess, or if not at the expense of, and certainly before hominess, right? And clearly, I, I'm with you. I do think, look, the judges are not. They're human beings. And so they're, I mean, Tom, you've written for years about sort of, you know, bias and unconscious bias and evaluating talent or, or skill. I mean, you know, you, you've done it beautifully on the subject of basketball, and there's no reason to believe that it doesn't exist here. And I'm with you there. And the question is, do I mind? And I don't know that I do. I really don't know that I do. You probably mind more than I do. No, it's just something I, I thought about. Right. It struck me that I think they were not just in love with the food, but they were even more enamored with the idea that Buddha could could you know throw this pitch. Um, cause exactly. he's, he's someone who is someone who has just those off speed pitches that you just don't see coming man. He's just so creative and innovative. And then he just threw 105 miles an hour with that pitch and they were just blown away. So, uh, Buddha wins. He has 67 points on our leaderboard. Uh, Evelyn has 52 Damar with 42. So there is a, a really stratified, um, tier here with Buddha running away with, with the points in this competition. But I think Evelyn and Damar, if they won top chef, I don't think either of us would be totally stunned by that. I still think Buddha over the field demonstrated in this episode that he has that kind of range, but in the bottom, look, Kevin, Ashley, as she said on this show, she has been hanging on by the skin of her teeth. She has been in the bottom six times this season. Uh, she was kicked out. Uh, she was eliminated and came back in right away. And she really just 
undercooked that squid to the point that Padma had to spit it out at the table. And as soon as that happened, I just wrote in my notes, goodbye, can't survive when one of the judges spits out your food. I'm sorry, can't. I, and I, I hate to put it in these terms, but I, I do feel like she has been, I, I feel like she's been working on borrowed time for a while now. And um, she just hasn't been executing her stuff well. It's a problem. And, you know, I think her best dish was might have been her first dish on the very first episode that, you know, uh, the kitfo, which looked delicious. But there have just been some fundamental errors of just, you know, protein, yeah. uh, incoherent dishes. Um, I really love the way she thinks about food. And I and I loved her seafood tower, clearly. Um, probably a little spicy for me, but I, I love jerk shrimp. And yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like it's been a long time since she's strung together really consecutive, well-executed dishes. Um Sarah was very disappointing in this sense, and I and I don't understand what she was thinking in this respect. And maybe it goes back to she the problem was she had too much time to think or um and didn't just cook. But first of all, tuna tataki with a sesame encrusted tuna, that's a nineties dish. Yes. It, it is the dish you get when you want to eat healthy on the menu. Look, I love fish and I love ahi and great tataki. Look, look, I love ordering a tataki tuna appetizer you know, at a place that I know is going to have great fish or where they have a little curveball to it. But but sesame encrusted tuna is a 90s mom dish. And it's not terribly interesting. Nobody has ever been wowed by it. Okay, so that, that's first and foremost. You know who would agree with that? Sarah would agree with that. I feel like Sarah would agree with that sentiment. You could tell she didn't really love what she did. Right. And secondly, you know your sister well. I mean, if the only you know, confinements are, you can't do something with fungus. I just think you can come up with something more interesting, a nod to your Jamaican upbringing or something. Is this anything? But I just thought that was, even before she didn't execute it well, I'm like, really? Sheldon, I thought, said it very well, which is you, you, you've stormed back into the competition and this is what you want to do? Mm. Like this? She's been doing far more interesting stuff in 30 minutes over in Last Chance Kitchen. And I just was really disappointed in the choice. And again, I, you're right. I think she sensed it too. She also called her, her, her a, a strategic mistake even before she did it, which was I have a choice to make here. You know, I have this peanut sauce that I've made and it should be, you know, so it, should, it should be approximate to the fish itself. But if I do that, I'm going to be plating for aesthetics. Rather, uh, you know, I, I, it won't look particularly good. So I'm not going to put the peanut sauce with the tuna, it'll be plated differently. Um, and she made an aesthetic decision at the expense of taste. And so as a result, the chefs didn't really get the, the, the peanut sauce, you know, approximate to the tuna itself, which, you know, eh. the sinuiness is weird. I, I've been trying to learn how to do, you know, I, Tom, I go to this at 6am. Sometimes I go to this um, wholesale fish market down in downtown Los Angeles, not far from my house. And you can go in and get like beautiful bluefin tuna, the same place that the sushi places go and, and you get it at a great price. You got to go into this cold place and put a hair nut on your head and and it's this very intricate process and it's just like this. Wait, you, whole, even you and I have to put a hair nut on? Oh, yeah. Even we have to put – it's very funny because I usually wear a baseball cap because it's very chilly in there as you can imagine and, and they just make you put your hair nut over your baseball cap. You look ridiculous but you do it anyway. <laughs> and um, so I've been learning to cook with – Tuna and I've had some kind of very sinewy moments where I thought I was going against the grain and I should have been against the grain, as Shota said, but I went with the wrong grain. And, and you know, you get this kind of those little white kind of little threads and it's it's not tasty. Um, so I've been learning how to do it. It's, it's hard. But I'm just shocked that not only was it an uninteresting dish that nobody really pines for, you settle for, 
it also she didn't even have experience in working with with raw tuna so it was just a I mean, the kind of choke brain, she got lucky. She got lucky that Ashley didn't cook her squid because barring that, she would have worked her ass all the way back from Last Chance Kitchen in consecutive weeks only to go out on a dish, a food she never prepares, wasn't particularly inspired, didn't seem to want to cook, and did not seem to correspond to her sister's passions. It seemed like something she thought she might like. It was just a weird decision all around. Yeah, she got really lucky here and Ashley goes home. I I kind of thought that it was actually kind of refreshing to see how grateful Ashley was. Like usually when people get sent home at this stage of the competition, it's a very emotional, they cry and it's and it's, you know, it it seems like a huge disappointment for them that they're not able to get to that final stage where they go to a new location. Ashley seemed incredibly grateful for the opportunity and like almost at peace that she didn't, she didn't get any further in the competition and, and very proud of the the fact that she was able to get this far. And you know, I, I, I like that self-awareness about her is that she recognizes she did not compete at the highest level in this show. And she was just happy with her, with her ability to, to compete um, and to try these new things and to learn about herself as a chef. And I thought that was really cool. So shouts to Ashley. Um, I, I, I drafted her very high. I thought she came out guns blazing on that first dish. And it was, it felt like, you know, this is going to be a really strong competitor, but it didn't really feel like she was devastated at the very end. And she, she did seem just very, um, just, I don't know, fortunate, like felt like she was, she really grew here on the show. So she goes home and, and Nick, bless his heart, finally gets in the bottom three. Although I kind of feel like in any other episode, he's in the middle. But just because they were three and three that he had to be in the bottom, his dish didn't seem to really mix very well or it seemed very um, different components and didn't seem very cohesive. Uh, Tom called it confusing. But I would have loved that dish. I, that's that's kind of got me written all over it. I, I, I would have loved that one. Yeah, it, it seemed like one of those dishes, and, and Gail expressed similar to the sentiment you're expressing, which is, yeah, I can't defend it from a technical standpoint. It just seemed like I could stand outside. You know, the kind of thing I, I would stand out, standing up, with the refrigerator still open with a fork in the Tupperware, <laughs> just eating it, right? Like, yeah. like there are certain dishes that you can't defend aesthetically, technically, or any other way other than the fact that, this tastes good. I mean, like, you know, at the end of the day, combos pretzels. <laughs> I mean, there's really like, powdery processed cheese and a, and, a, and a thick, there's certain foods that just get you. Now, I will say this. I, I agree with Tom in the sense that I, I still don't know what that dish was. Like, it's it's been explained to me. It's been shown to me. I've seen people eating it on television. And I don't know if it's like a hot pasta with, like, I don't, but then it was like macaroni salad. And I know Adrian said something that needed the creaminess, but did it if it wasn't like, I don't, I have no idea what that dish was. And I still don't know what it was. It was a rare misstep for Nick because he's never been in the bottom three yet in this competition. And right here, he's almost by default in the bottom. I thought it was fine. It wasn't, it wasn't an egregious mistake. There was nothing in that dish that made me worry about his chances going forward. Um, but I, I did note that I do think I would have really enjoyed it. And I love salty dishes. So the pork belly, uh, and the, and the crab in there, I, I thought I would have, I thought I would, would just gobble that thing up. But two questions for you, Kevin, question number one, how do you handle inclement weather? Like you're out on that, po- that back porch and it starts lightning. I live in Los Angeles, man. There is no inclement weather there. No, we don't basically have I mean, once or twice a year. It rains 
you know, days in advance. When the first lightning strikes and the thunder hits, are you like, get, get, get me the fuck out of here. I need to get and get inside. I guess again, I, I, I can't remember the last time I, you know, it's so funny. You grew up in the Southeast. Like I do. You're right. Like I'm trying to remember what it was like. Cause you know, you'd be like, Oh, Hey, we planned a day of tennis playing or we're going to go to the pool or whatever. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, it's 85 degrees and sunny. And then the next thing you know, it's like freaking Toto is running through the, the hatch or something. Right. <laughs> and, and like a tornado is coming. And I, and I don't, I don't recall, I, I guess I'm such the thing about Angelinos are, and I'm basically at that point, at this point, 25 years in an Angelino is like, we're not even equipped, like the, the conception that you're going to be disrupted because what happens is when we do get these rainstorms, because there's nothing blocking it, there's no, like it's coming in from the West. Like, you know, five days in advance down to the hour <laughs> when it's going to pour because there's like nothing stopping it. Like you see that band and it's coming and it's not like, Oh, the Rocky mountains will subside it or, 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 or it'll, you know, like the way it does in the, in, the, in the interior United States or the Southeast. And so it's like, we're just sort of like, yep, just cancel everything. Cancel life for five days because we're going to get our big El Nino storm. So I don't know, but I did think it was very amusing that the judges table got canceled on account of rain, which I, I just thought was so funny. Yeah, it looked it looked pretty fierce. Um, it, it was kind of kind of fun to watch them have to call an audible and go inside and sit at the little wooden table, and and Sheldon's just kind of like off to the side, just hanging on to that table. It was it was kind of cool. And you know, the producers are just having a, an absolute panic attack trying oh, to get that totally. get that thing together and all, everything that they set up outside and the beautiful backdrop on the water, and it all goes to shit. So um, that's my first question. My second question, Kevin. You get $10,000 by Verbo to go anywhere in the world. Where are you going? Buddha chose Rome because he wanted to eat that dish with his wife. Totally get it. Romantic. But when you got that prompt of $10,000 furnished by Verbo, what's your answer? This is a great, great parlor game question. So there are a couple of different ways you can go here, right? Let, let's set aside geography for a second. You get $10,000. I've been on VRBO and, and looked for places maybe to rent with some family member, whatever. So you could do one of two things. You could do like a week for $1,400 a night at like, let's say near Tulum or somewhere where you get like a four, five bedroom house with five baths and a pool near the beach, right? So mm. for a week you have, whether it's you, I mean, you're close with your siblings, you know, or their families, or you just gather your four or five best friend couples or single, it doesn't matter. And for a week, you just do that, right? The other one would be, Okay, ten grand. That's three hundred bucks a night for a month. Hey, let's go to Tuscany, just Eric and uh, you and you and the girls, and just go get a two bedroom house with a lovely pool in like in Tuscany and stay the month there, right? Like basically that that covers a month's rent. And let's not worry about size because we're we're gonna be going around and getting ridden bicycles and doing Tuscany and making day trips. Are my girls sleeping in your room, Kevin, with two bedrooms? Like how does that work? Well, I go with you. I, I don't. I don't do children. Like oh, okay, okay. I was, no I disrespect. Was... I love your girls. I'm going on vacation. I don't. I don't. I don't <laughs> I want a child anywhere that. near my vacation. I go to child-free resorts. Bless your people with children. I love you. When they're older, I'll give them an internship out in LA. I, I, they can come hang out with me. I, I do not want children anywhere near my vacation. In general, bless your heart, and, and I love your girls. But so I think that's the question, right? So you go. Are you doing the month? Just you and, and, and the family or just you and a spouse or are you doing like, hey, let's blow it out for a week, get a freaking $1,400 beach house and everybody come to town and we're just going to have beautiful dinners and we'll cook in or get someone to cook for us in. And I think that's the question. Is there a place, even if we want to trim it down even further, is there a place on your list for 
just a weekend that $3,000 a night? Is that even a thing? Yeah, I think you can. And I don't know if VRBO does it. We can find out the yacht. In other words, you get so when, I, when I was looking at Panama, which you recommended I was going to do except COVID canceled it. There are these situations where you pay and you get the captain and the first mate and like they anchor in the beautiful cove in the coral cove or whatever. And you go like swimming in the ocean yes. and you come back up the ladder after swimming for an hour and then laid out for you is this beautiful lunch with a chilled bottle of wine and the whole fish. And you can do that for like four days at 2,500 and you get like the yacht, you get to live like, like a, a like a tech lord. <laughs> yeah. And that is what you would do in that situation when you're talking about. You want to blow like 2,500 a night, four nights. That's what you do. You go to like St. Bob's, one of the saints in the Caribbean. You know those places better than I do. Mm. I live on the other side of the country. St. This or St. That or St. Whatever. The, the Virgin Islands of Britain or Tasmania or whatever. Yeah, we did St. Lucia for our honeymoon. Yeah, yeah that type of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's if you want to do 2,500 times four, that's what you do. And you get the, the chef and the first mate and the big old yacht. I'm voting for the week in Tulum. Okay. I, I like that too with friends and everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm voting for. But I like I like his choice. Rome with your with your partner, a romantic trip with your partner. And, and it has a story element to it. Okay. I have something for because I know you're Mr. Social Media and I don't actually participate in social media. But to our listeners, reply to this episode. Yes. With the link to your VRBO that you would do for 10 grand mark the number of days in the property and we'll have like a little contest right like who has the best 10 grand vrbo um expenditure or or, or vacation and and i think that this is a this is a really fun exercise time we could do a whole podcast on, on just this question oh i'd love this the rental parlor questions for for kevin this might be launching a new episode a new podcast series from kevin arnovitz is called for traveling here's ten thousand dollars Go find me the coolest vacation. So that, that's that's a good one. Um, I love this gift. I, I think they should. I like the new sponsor here. I, I, I love this sort of um, this this new gift for the chef, for the chefs. The the, the the VRBO blank check or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look. Last thoughts here. Um, Buddha Buddha didn't show me anything in this episode that makes me disagree with my notion last week that it is. Buddha over the field. That's how good he is on this show. It was cool to see him get emotional there with the victory and what that meant to him and his relationship with his wife. Um, that was that was cool because we kind of think of him as like a soulless robot, robot, and that is certainly not the case. Um, if he if he wins Top Chef, I think he goes down as one of the best ever on this show. So even though the competition might not be the strongest, I think Buddha has been that good, and it's kind of cool to see a nerd like him who is actually cared enough about the the franchise of this show that he's studied up on it and he has executed every step of the way. So next, the preview of the next episode, they're, they're still going to be in Galveston. They're not quite going to the next location. Um, and it seems like they're doing some stuff on a boat and uh, not too much drama, nothing that like, oh, no cliffhangers, super big cliffhangers here. Uh, but uh, all in all, I, I would put this as either my favorite episode of this season or or right behind the doppelganger episode. Yeah, no, I, I, I like this episode. It is interesting. And we've talked about it each of the last few weeks. There really is a tier system here. And we are seeing Buddha up top with Evelyn to me, a strong second with Damara close third. And we're sort of culling the field here as we imagine we would. Um, un unfortunately, Ashley uh, 
I think Sarah still has some issues. She clearly is. And look, there there's certain chefs like this where the quick fire just really suits them well. She still needs to get out of her head, I think, a little bit. In fact, I, I think there might have been, if I'm not mistaken, in the preview, there might have been a suggestion. I think she says something about the fact, like, just pretend you're on quick fire. Just pretend you're on quick fire. It's a real mental game. So yet another reason I really like Sarah in this competition and back in the competition is I feel like the mental, the, the, the mental pitfalls that exist in this game naturally, she kind of embodies in, in a great way. Like she's, she's, she's sort of sharing with us sort of, hey, this is how this, this, this game can really get in your head. Um, but she, she needs to make better decisions next week if she's going to hang out. I still think she's got the chops to, to make it into a finale, even a final three. But uh, she's got to make just better decisions. And I think she's capable of it. There's no chef left that I don't think can win this whole thing. That doesn't mean that I think they will win this whole thing, but Nick, Damar, Evelyn, and Sarah on your team, literally the field, and I got Buddha. So literally, people in in our mentions on Twitter or hit up the the Instagram on Pack Knives on Instagram or Pack sorry, Pack Knives on Twitter and Pack Your Knives on Instagram. Are you taking t- Team Tom or taking t- Team Kevin? Because that literally is Buddha versus the field at this point. So you have 164 points. I have 98. It only is 25 points to the winner of Top Chef. So I think I got to run the table here with Buddha in order to have even a chance, a puncher's chance at beating you this season. You have just been absolutely slaying me in this in this fantasy season. Yeah, but the funny thing is with no real great like no, no, no real straight strategy. I got lucky in the draft. Once again, we, we proved our inability to draft. Um, so, uh, in fact, of my seven contestants, my fifth, sixth, and seventh contestants are still alive. And, and second is as well, only by virtue of Last Chance Kitchen. So my one, three, and four are all been gone and frankly gone for quite a while now. For Tom Haberstroh, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Pack Your Knives.